Hello there, and welcome to Humans and Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. Welcome to episode 74 with Noah Weil. Noah is a person who wears many different hats. He's a father, lawyer, ex-Wizards of the Coast member, professional player, and, well, you just have to listen on. He has been involved in a lot of different things. Noah and I have a little bit of history together Last year, when I was putting the finishing touches on the Humans of Magic book, that was when Noah reached out to me out of the wild. See, I had known about Noah and his exploits through talking to Jerry Thompson on this podcast. Noah wrote an article way back about depression or depressive tendencies and magic as someone who lived that life. So I had known about Noah for a while, but last year when I was writing the book, Noah reached out because he had listened to my podcast for the first time and we realized that what he was trying to do with his new podcast and what I had been doing for a while had a little bit of intersection. So that was pretty interesting. We had a bunch of chats about that. And so when I was creating the last few finishing touches on the book, Noah graciously offered to help proofread bits of the book and he provided a lot of good constructive feedback that made its way into the final edition. So I am and was eternally grateful for Noah's contributions there. We kept in touch and through last year until this year, Noah has managed to create, in my opinion, one of the finer magic podcasts around. It's a seven episode series, very self-contained. And it's just great. He just goes into the history of magic, you know, from the very beginning and really the early years. That's something that I think if you're at all interested in Magic the Gathering, and chances are you are because you're listening to this podcast, it's well worth checking out. The other really cool thing about the interview is just that Noah is such a proficient interviewer. I would say that his level is above mine in terms of being able to really break things down, do the research and talk to the guests and relate to them. And so this interview that we had in this episode turned out to be a really fun one because it was almost like two interviewers interviewing each other. You'll probably get a sense for what I mean once you start listening to it, but I thought it was a lot of fun, really enjoyed it, and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to highlight Noah and his work in this episode. The other thing I want to say is that the audio quality in some very specific places in this recording dropped in and out. We did our best to correct it, but we weren't perfect in that area. So I just want to say apologies in advance for the less than pristine quality, but I still believe that it is a very listenable episode, so I hope you will bear with us. Before we get into the podcast, I want to make sure that the proper shout-outs are made. This podcast is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball provides excellent magic singles, awesome events, and even better strategy articles. So if you are looking for anything magic related, whether it's improving your game, leveling up, getting the newest singles from the latest set, or just watching awesome coverage and streams, you don't want to miss it. Definitely go to channelfireball.com for all of your magic needs. 
This podcast is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live is a company that I have built from scratch, and we are in the business of providing excellent stream extensions. So if you are streaming magic of any kind, whether it is arena, magic online, or tabletop tournaments, you will not want to miss it. You can become a member of the beta program by emailing us at beta at cardboard.live. Cardboard Live is the future of magic gaming, and we hope to hear from you. The music in this episode is brought to you by Kupla. That's K-U-P-L-A. Kupla is an amazing musician. He's also a talented magic player, and he has graciously sponsored the show with his music for a very long time. Please, please, please support his work. You can find Kupla's music on all the places you find music, including Spotify and SoundCloud and many, many other places. Start streaming, give him a follow on Twitter, do what it takes, support great music. Last but not least, you can find all of the Humans of Magic content, including information on the Humans of Magic book at humansofmagic.com. That's humansofmagic.com. Pretty easy to remember URL. You can sign up for the mailing list. You can enter to win a free copy of the book. You can listen to past episodes, transcripts, you name it. Just go to humansofmagic.com, and that's the best way to support the project. Thank you. So yeah, hope you enjoy it. This is Humans of Magic with Noah Weil. Today, I am here on Humans of Magic with someone who is a very proficient interviewer in his own right, big fan of his show. It's called Gathering Stories, the History of Magic. So I'm here today with Noah Weil. Noah, how are you, man? I'm good, James. How are you? Not too bad. It's kind of raining. I guess it's very Canadian to just talk about the weather all the time. I've had people tell me that. Like, I'm not living in Canada anymore, but I'm, li- I'm living in China. I'm in Shanghai. But today's been a little better because it's usually really, really hot. I know that for Americans, you guys use Fahrenheit, but I guess it's around like, it's been around like 80 to 85 Fahrenheit consistently. And today it was raining in the morning, so it got a little bit cooler. So I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that as we're doing this, I'm actually wearing pants and not shorts, you know, because it's, <laughs> I can, it's actually a little bit, little bit of a breeze. So anyway, that's a bit of a long, longish answer, but I'm doing really good. And uh, whereabouts are you today, Noah? Oh, I'm in my house uh, in Shoreline, which is just, uh, just north of Seattle. Um, the weather, weather was pretty nice today. We've had a few cool days, actually, but today it was very sunny and warm. I would say mid to high 70s Fahrenheit. But I'm more curious what the pandemic is like where you are right now. How how's the culture of that? How how is the government and the people treating it right now? Well, from what I have heard about how I mean, if, if I were to make a a comparison, it seems to be handled a little bit better than in the United States, based on what I have uh, read or talked to people about. Uh, <laughs> that's a really that's a really low bar. <laughs> maybe maybe understatement of the day, right? But Essentially, everything's gone back to normal in China, at least in the tier one cities, the major cities like Shanghai and Beijing. And yeah, I mean, people have gone back to work. 
all, all the restaurants, all the establishments are open again. And from looking at the data, of course, data from China is, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but new cases have been, have been sort of flattened. So, you know, I, people are feeling safe enough on the streets of Shanghai to basically walk around without a mask. Whereas two months ago, I would say 90% of people were wearing a mask everywhere, indoors, outdoors. I like to think, I like to hope that the mask thing really brought the cases down, but it's also just the government putting in very strict quarantining measures. So for example, there were periods, you know, we have like the green, yellow, red alerts. So there were periods of time where if you were coming back into the city, you would have to self-quarantine in an established hotel and for 14 days, you couldn't actually go back to your home unless you follow these procedures. We all have sort of these personal health codes. So they basically update based on tracking where you've been. Like, you know, have you been here domestically? Did you come back from Canada or something? Which is the case for me uh, way back in March. Uh, I've stayed in China since. And you can make an argument for like, you know, this is a totalitarian regime. You know, they're doing what they want. You know, personal freedoms, human rights. I totally get it. But in times like this, I have to say, I'm actually sort of relieved that these things are in place and people largely follow them. And well, so can I ask a question about that? Yeah, sure. So America has this rugged individualism that's just the worst thing possible right now during a pandemic. But um, I'm really glad China is doing better and you're doing better and everything like that. When people, and I know China is in a huge place and I don't want to cast a, a wide net to say everybody believes in one thing or another, but do you think that generally the population will follow these rules from the government because of a fear of reprisal or because of just a pride and belief in the, the Chinese way in the Chinese government and just doing doing things among the culture? Do you know what I mean? I feel it's the latter. I, I think there are a very small minority that distrust everything the government is about. But I think living in China, people have been it's a sort of like, you know, why, why does government exist, right? You know, they're, they're, they're giving you something in exchange for, for something. So I do feel like the, the Chinese prosperity or the way that China has evolved over the last couple of years or even the last couple of decades is predicated on faith in the regime. And uh, maybe it's a little bit analogous to how in the U.S., despite how people feel about the current sitting president or the parties in power, they still respect that establishment. They still respect like, you know, these are the structures in place. Uh, so maybe that's a very convoluted answer, but I do think it's the latter. Like people do actually feel like the government is looking out for them and it's not some fear of going to jail uh, for, for, for not following the instructions. I understand. What about the uh, rugged individualism? Is that because I hear that a lot or I read about it a lot. Is that something that you feel is real? Like, is that the main reason for why people behave the way they do? Is, or are there other, th- other factors too, in your opinion? In, in my opinion, not you know, an anthropologist or an immunologist or anything that would have any kind of credibility to answer that question. Um, in my opinion, there's a lot of factors. I feel like 
I feel like there's not a lot of pride right now as being an American or as being part of a community. Um, you know, I've, I've looked at stuff from World War One, World War Two, when our country kind of came together, um, especially World War One, because the 1918 flu was right after World War One. We were already reeling, but we still had that common experience. And I just feel like the the idea of protecting one's neighbors just doesn't seem to to plant here. And I don't mean like literal neighbors because I know all my neighbors and they're super nice people and they've helped us out and we've helped them out and everything, but just in the sense of how can we strengthen our community as a whole? There are people who feel that way, certainly plenty of people that feel that way, but it just doesn't seem to be part of the public consciousness. Some people feel that way and some people don't. And I don't know exactly where it comes from, social media or a lack of events that bring out a community's pride or something, I really couldn't say. But I do feel like it's not so much that everybody wants to be a cowboy and be on their own and decide their own things. There's just not that kind of cultural pressure to look out for other people. It's just it's just not part of the culture to think about your community. It's just more about prospering at work and achieving personal goals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just... You know, there's a bunch of garbage YouTube videos and alternate cable outlets and all these things that are just spouting all these horrible conspiracy theories that have no basis in science. But people pick them up and repeat them, and then it just spirals out of control. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, I do feel like growing up in North America, I mean, I didn't grow up in the U.S., but up north in Canada, on the West Coast, I guess, uh, maybe similar to, uh, it's a little bit close to Seattle, Vancouver, but... uh, Mm -hmm. I do feel like this conversation happened like eight to 10 years ago because there was this incident in China where multiple incidents where you had somebody just get recorded on camera, like falling on the street, basically an old person who got hurt and, or maybe had a heart attack or something. And it was just really this cruel reality of like nobody for, you know, half an hour, everyone who passed by either walking by or cycling or driving didn't stop to help that person and it was explained as this sort of like in China as like you know that could be a scammer because if you try to help that person they might say that you're the one that tripped them and they want money or something because that has happened a non-zero amount of times but even I remember even back then and I, I, I hope now it's like I still feel like in North America if that something like that happened like if your neighbor was obviously hurt and lying on the ground in your in your block you would probably despite how you feel about like advancing yourself and protecting yourself you would probably still or the average american i would hope or north american would still help that person right i i think they would i don't think there'd be any question about that but it's like the people who say i can't hate women because i have a mother and a sister who i love it's easy when it's immediately in front of you. When you mm-hmm. see a person, you know that person. That's one thing. It's the unknown people, like the the anonymous masses out there that you still would be benefit if you're wearing a mask. That's the problem that people can't overcome, that they can't implement in their consciousness that these are people who are out there and have real feelings and their own dreams and all the rest of it. They're just For a lot of people, they're just so speculative that it's not worth an individual changing their behavior for this anonymous person that's you know maybe lives 10 miles away or 50 miles away mm-hmm. i know that you said you're not 100 percent sure where 
this or this behavior or lack of behavior comes from, but do you think it could be education related or just culture related or just because I think I think you and I are probably in a similar are you a millennial or are are you in that I, that bucket? I or? think it depends. I think it depends who you ask. I was born in nineteen eighty. So it's like Generation X yeah. or Millennial. Late, late stage like Gen X. It's kind of right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know where it comes from. I think social media is an issue. It really lets you have an echo chamber and amplifying ideas, good or bad. You can find other like-minded people. I knew when I grew up, if you had a crazy idea, you could share it with your friends. And that's as far as it went. And if it was a dumb idea, they would tell you pretty quickly it was dumb. But now you can plug in any kind of idea, you know, flat earth, anti-vax, whatever. And you will find people that share those ideas and will reinforce them for you. And I think that's an issue. How are things in the the wild household right now? I know you've got <laughs> a, a family. You've got two kids that are fairly young. So are you like, describe that situation for me right now. Describe that situation for you right now. Well, every day is different. Um, I have a wife who's working at home. I'm mostly working at home, and I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old for the most part. They they get out one or two days a week at another house. We kind of have this shared thing going on. But for the most part, we're working at home, and they're at home. And so <laughs> it's a challenge. Um, it's really hard to get work done. Every every day is different. Some days are better than others. I think I think we're doing okay as far as keeping everybody emotionally on the level. Like, we've tried to manage our expectations. This is, you know... a kind of a dead summer for us. We're not going to go on plane trips or anything. And they've they've gotten the hang of it. My daughter was in kindergarten this year and she wasn't able to finish the school year. And that was sad, but she didn't have a previous school year to compare it to. So it's not like, oh, this year's worse than my other school years. This was just like the year she had. And it's just mm-hmm. the, her memory of school is this. So, you know, we're really trying to um, be attentive to their needs and how they're feeling and we're trying to be attentive to our own feelings, but it's, it's challenging. I was in the backyard this afternoon and a lawyer called me and we were trying to talk about a case. And like in, during our conversation, there was a sprinkler out and my daughter kept moving closer to the house. And I was like, you know, we can reach a deal. We can talk about this, but I need, you know, X, Y, Z. And then I'm like, Hey, don't move the sprinkler close to the house. Don't spray the house with water anyway. So, you know, I've got to talk to my client about, Hey, put your pants back on. Okay. Anyway, we'll have to have, we'll come back to this in a couple of days. You know, it's just like it's absurd. Like it's not real life, except everybody is dealing with it right now. And so it really, to me, feels like just one day at a time. You, you have some rough days and you have some better days, but I think we're we're hanging on. Okay. Do your do your kids, especially your your older daughter, do they understand what is happening, or do you try to, like, I guess it's like, I guess the way I would ask this is, have you tried to explain to them what the pandemic is or have you tried to sort of shield them a little bit from what is happening? Cause yeah, I, I'm just trying to figure out that dynamic, you know, I haven't tried to shield them. My three-year-old understands virus, understands getting sick. You know, he's been sick before. He knows what that feels like. I'm not talking to him about, you know, fatality rates or anything like that, but he understands there's a virus because you have to explain why can't we have play dates right now? Why can't we, go into a restaurant right now and you have to explain there's a virus going around. We don't have a cure for it and people are getting really sick and we, we need to make sure we don't get sick. We don't want to go to the hospital. Um, we don't want you to go to the hospital and things like that. So I've explained it to him as well as you can to a three-year-old and I think he gets it. He certainly knows the word virus and knows what it means. 
my six-year-old, I give more information. We talked about bats and, you know, transmission from that. And she's, she's interested. She's a very curious kid. And, um, you know, there's, there's things you don't tell them. You don't have to tell them like dying horrifically or lungs filling with fluid, but saying people have died and we're taking it seriously and we're trying to be safe. And, you know, that older people are more vulnerable and we don't want grandma and grandpa to get sick and things like that. And she gets it. That's, that's really good. I don't think there's a reason to shield them from it. And I think you do need to have an explanation of why things are so different at this point. Yeah. So I don't have any kids yet, but I, from my interact, from my observations, it seems like kids are just so naturally curious that you sort of have to come to grips with explaining everything to them because if they have that personality, it'll just be nonstop. You just have to tell them. Otherwise it'll just be this ongoing fabrication of lies, which is also like mentally tiring. I, hard, I would guess someone had to do that. Yeah. We have, we still have Santa going right now. I don't think I can, I don't <laughs> okay. think she'll have it going for another year, but I think it's fun that she still believes in it right now. And no. uh, I don't mind maintaining that, that dream for her, you know? Okay. It's, yeah. it's fine. Um, but yeah, they are curious. They have a lot of questions and I, I think they deserve to know. You do have to edit your comments. You have to be reasonable about it. Um, <laughs> um, there was a time, this is way off topic, but there was a time where uh, my wife and I were walking and my daughter was like, I think one or something. She was in a stroller and we were walking down the street and uh, we saw this dog run out of a yard and get hit by a car. And it was like, it, it died pretty much. It didn't like get bloody, but it just died. It got clipped. And so we were trying to find the house. <laughs> we were trying to find the house that the dog came from. And we, we narrowed down to two houses, knocked on the first one, no one was there, went to the second house, knocked on the door, and this seven-year-old kid opened the door, seven or eight or something, and I just started off by saying, your, your dog was hit by a car. <laughs> My wife was like, what the hell are you doing? Is your mom or dad home? Like, And he's like, yeah, I guess I'll go get him. Um, and I was just like, oh, yeah, I should really like think about children. And, and <laughs> that just, just lead with your dog is dead. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, pretty embarrassing. I don't think you really got it because, you know, there's two strangers at the door saying random things. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was their house. And, you know, we had that conversation with them. But I felt really bad about it. But as I've had kids who can talk and interact with them more, I've I've learned the value of, like, choosing your words more carefully. Would you say that you've always been more more blunt or at least relative to your wife? Just in No, terms that just... was pretty out of character for me, honestly. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, you want to craft an experience for them. You don't want to have nightmares, but you don't want them to not know anything either. So it's just, just there's parenting is a lot of, a lot of decisions, a lot of decisions every single day. My, my son, it's kind of unusual for him, but tonight he was just screaming for my wife to put him to bed. We usually switch off and I was doing it tonight and he was just screaming at the top of his lungs. Oh, mommy, not you, you know, whatever. And it's a choice. Like, do you want your child to scream for what they want? Because then that encourages them and they're going to yell for him more. You like, you want him to say, please, and, you know, have a conversation. Or you just say, he's so tired and this is what he wants. You just give it to him. And it's like, I don't know the right answer. My wife came in and, and took care of it eventually. But that's like every every minute there's decisions like that, you know, which mm -hmm. way you go. It's it's a yeah. lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work with real consequences, I, I, I would expect. I mean, yeah, kind of. But it's like there's so many decisions and you know you're going to get so many wrong. I think if you just you're batting above 500, yeah. you'll probably be fine. Like yeah. you can't get it perfect all the time. You get tired, they get tired. It's, 
you do your best guess. Parenting's a lot of work. I have a lot of a lot of sympathy for for parents, especially right now. Mm-hmm. What about the work situation for you? I know you're taking calls while the sprinkler's on, but do you set? <laughs> do you have ways to set boundaries for yourself? For example, do you lock yourself in a in your study, like you know, for certain hours, or how how does it work for you with your your profession? Yeah, it's it's interesting right now. I mean, the courts are in a crazy spot. The Washington Supreme Court, the head court that's in charge of all the other courts, have said, try to get virtual hearings, try to do as much virtually as possible, but we're going to leave it to every court to do their own thing. And so what's happened is it's just a patchwork of responses right now. Some courts are doing everything by Zoom. Some are having nothing by Zoom and you show up. Some are doing telephone hearings, but not not video um, and some courts have just shut down for a couple of months, but now they're slowly ramping back up. And so there's more and more going on. And so in answer to your question, it kind of depends on the day. My schedule is different every single day. If there's something I have to do, if I have to be virtual or go somewhere, you know, I work it out with my wife. If it's just writing, which is a lot of my work is reading and writing. Usually, you know, we talk about my wife, she has meetings too. And we try to find a way that the kids are attended to by one parent and the other person gets their work done and bounce back and forth depending on our needs. But with the courts, the courts as they are right now and the situation changing, it's, it's tough. What kind of law do you practice? I do mostly criminal defense. Criminal defense. Yeah. Representing people charged with crimes. Have you always been in this field or like how long have you been a lawyer for? How long have you had uh, your, your license? I've been a lawyer for 10 years, um, and originally I wanted to get into alternative dispute resolution, which is just like mediation and arbitration, um, but then I did an internship in my third year of law school with the public defenders, and I really felt connected to that, and I, it really resonated with me, and so ever since then I've done criminal defense. What are some of the things that sort of drew you to this field and continue to keep you in it? Well, there's a bunch of things. Um, You know, you get the opportunity to work with individuals. It's a really one-on-one kind of work. I don't represent corporations or big government entities. You know, it's a single person who is in trouble and I'm able to, you know, talk to them and hear their story and help them out. It's a trial-based practice area. There's some people, some lawyers who just never go inside a courtroom or ever go to trial. And that's not criminal work. You know, you're in trial a lot. You're in the courtroom constantly. And that's something that really resonates with me too. It's also also a very tactical kind of work. There's a lot of like strategy, which I enjoy too. Excellent. How big is your law firm? Like, is it like a whole whole squad of lawyers all working on (laughs) it? You are talking to the entire firm right now. I don't have a partner. I don't have a secretary um, or paralegal. I did have a partner for a little while. That was fine. But yeah, right now it's just me, which I'm actually happy about because I'd probably have to you know, lay somebody off at this stage. I see. And, and have you always, because uh, I'm not too well versed in this area. So you're basically, this is basically like your, it's like your own practice or your own business, right? Mm-hmm. It's my, my law office of No Wild PLLC. You know, I've got a okay. business license and everything. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been doing this on your own? Is it like just for the past 10 years or? 
Not quite. I was a public defender for a little while, um, and then they had some budget issues. So I've been out on my own for eight or nine years now. Yeah. Yeah. Eight or nine years. Eight and a half. Yeah. This might be a little bit of jumping around, but uh, how did your law, going to law school and your law career overlap with your time at Wizards or your pre-law life? Like, can you get into that a little bit? Sure. Um, my time at the company? Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. So I got offered that internship the, I think it was December or January prior to starting law school. I had applied before I got the internship, but I didn't get accepted until near the end of my term there. So I basically, actually, yeah, it was kind of annoying now that I think about it because at the law school I went to, they offered a single course in the summer just to let students get their feet wet and you wouldn't have such a crushing load in the fall. And I couldn't take it because I was still a wizard. And I think at the time they hadn't told me whether I'd have a job or not. So I declined, I declined, I accepted the student spot because there wasn't any harm in accepting it. Um, but I declined to take the summer course and then they said there was no job. And then I jumped in the fall with a full, full course load um, at that point. Correct. So I went directly from basically directly from wizards to law school. Although I think I, yeah, I was still writing my column for the first half of law school, which was awful also, but what, what year was your last year at wizards? Was it 2009 or 2008? Uh, 2007. 2007. I think 2007. Yeah. And how, like how, right long in, how long total were you were you at Wizards for? I think it was just eight or nine months. Okay. But it was a uh, it was a full time position. Like, what was your what was it what was your title there? Uh, R and D intern, I believe it was. Okay. Uh, how? Yeah, they... Oh no, go ahead, please. Well, yeah, I mean, they hired me with four other people at the same time, so I think we we're all I think we we're all R and D interns at the time. Okay. At, at the time, did you just think that you wanted to have a, a, a career in R&D? Is that like getting in there? Yeah, I, I thought about it for a while. Um, you know, I'd met the people over the years and talked to them about their work because I was curious about it. And then, and then Wizard of the Coast did the, or did the great designer search, you know. And so I was a columnist for their website at the time. I was doing limited information and mm -hmm. done for a couple of years. And I talked to my editor about it. I said, I'm interested in applying for this promotion, um, but is that an issue that I'm also a contractor with you? And they, they checked it. They said it was fine. And so um, I found out, I think, on a plane ride to Japan when I was doing event coverage um, that I had gotten. I was one of the 16 people, I think it was 16, for the great designer search. So I knew at that point I had a foot in the door. And at the time, who who was the key decision maker that, said, you know, we're going to have Noah on as a as an R&D intern? I'm sure it was talked about. I mean, I wasn't part of the discussions, obviously, but I'm sure Mark Rosewater was the main decider at that mm -hmm. point. Okay. And uh, what what was the what were the eight or nine months like? I, I'm sorry, I didn't do research on this, so I, <laughs> you can link me to an article afterwards that says, you know, my time at R and D. What was it like? But, no, I haven't. Honestly, I've never really talked about it, so I don't mind talking about it with you, but I don't think you're going to find much. Um, it was weird. It was a weird time. 
Um, so let me see. So going into it, I was basically paying the bills through poker and writing and event coverage and like magic. Okay. I didn't have like a full-time job or anything. Um, I was dating my now wife at the time, but it was a really freelance lifestyle. And so it was a shift to go from that to a corporate environment. Um, at the same time, but I lived, I lived in Seattle at the time. And at the same time, they hired five people at once. There was, there was Alexis, who won the Great Designer Search, Ken Nagel, Graham Hopkins, Mark Globus, myself. I don't know if that's five or if I'm missing somebody. But um, So we were all hired at once. And what I found out, I found a bunch of things out pretty quickly. But one was that time spiral financials were not what they wanted. Time spiral block had been out. And it was just not selling the way they wanted. So they kind of overhired for their budget. And so that was like a bad start. Um, and they were, <laughs> we can get into this too. Uh, like the first day I was there, they took us all out for lunch. And they were like, listen, you don't know anything. You're brand new here. Just don't say anything. Just spend a couple of months just kind of learning the ropes and just, you know, picking things up. Because you really don't have any opinions to offer that will be valuable at all in any meetings. And, you know, if, if they had known me, I would have been like, that's not really my style. You know, I could try, but it's just not yeah. like, you know, if I see something, I'll speak up. And it, and it wasn't some kind of like next level, like reverse psychology either, right? <laughs> no, I, I think I think they really felt they were doing us a favor by like having us not stick our necks out. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if going into it, they knew they weren't going to have everybody stay on. I don't know. Um, but they certainly didn't have everybody stay on. So I think, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I don't think I was a particularly great employee in the sense of like, I wasn't, I mean, like I spoke up, you know, when I saw something, I spoke up and I wasn't, I found like corporate structures to be silly. You know, I'm, I'm really like a pragmatist. I just like getting to the right results. And there's so much um, red tape, for lack of a better word, that I just thought it was kind of silly. and I didn't always follow that stuff. But I also think they weren't particularly great at the time. They're going through a lot of transitions. In the middle of my internship there, Aaron Forsyth got promoted to director. I don't remember who was there before, if there was just a, a void there. But I think they had they'd hired too many people. They didn't know what to do with them. And so a lot of the times I would say, like, I'm working, but I don't, I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job. I'm not sure if you want me doing something else. Can you tell me? And they were like, no, it's, you'll figure it out. It's fine. You'll, you'll get the hang of it. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sure I will, and I'm not sure I am. So if you can give me some more guidance. And it just never really materialized. Like a lot of the times when we'd meet, it would be, can you tell us how you think the other people are doing? You know, are they doing a good job, do you think? And so I feel like they were meeting with all of us to talk about the other people, which was like the opposite of a performance review. It was like somebody else's performance review. It was all very strange. So I don't, you know, I'm sure they have a different version of events, but... I feel like I was a little adrift there and I feel like they also didn't quite know what to do. And so when I got, you know, I liked a lot of the work I did. I worked on Lorwyn and Morning Tide and I thought I did a good job there. No one, no one complained about the work that I did, at least to my face. And I think, you know, I helped, I made some cards and developed some cards and it was fun. Um, but you know, when I got the law school results and I said, I'm in, I'm in law school, I got admitted to law school. I, one of them said to me, um, 
Well, that's that's great. You know, I'm glad you have I'm glad you have something you can you know fall back on if this doesn't work out. And it felt like they they had that was that was easing for them that they could make a decision about who to cut to that point because I had something else left over. And then I interviewed for a job in there, a lateral move, which I got the interview and I succeeded, but then that position was eliminated. So then I had nothing. And then that was the end of that. I see. Was there a sliding doors moment where you would have continued on as working in wizards if you didn't get that law school? Could you, could you ever imagine that? I, maybe you've thought about it. I don't, I don't know if they wanted me, honestly. Like they never told me we like your work or don't like your work. It was just really kind of silent and everything. Yeah. Um, like I said, I wish there was more training and more guidance. The, the entire training was like an HR thing about sexual harassment. And then, you know, don't stick your neck out until you know something. Right. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what they would have done at any point. You know, I just, the way they run things there is pretty weird. I think they've made a lot of improvements. Um, Mark Glovis continued on for a while and him and I would get lunch once a month or so. And I would just, he would tell me what was going on there and I'd give him some suggestions because he was getting some management leadership roles. And I was saying like, here's, here's what I think you can do to make the team a little more cohesive and, you know, add some policies and whether he ever implemented them or not, I don't know, but he was interested in what we talked sure. about. So I, I care about the company. I still want them to succeed, but I just internally at the time, I don't think they were doing a great job of giving guidance to their employees or their interns. And I've, I've heard that from other people. A lot of it was like clickish pseudo meritocracy you know if you, you're on the inside that's great if you're not that's not good i've never been good at that stuff and i'm sure that didn't help me at all but you know like i said they might have their own version of of history and that's perfectly valid i i'm glad i was there i'm glad i had that experience but it's not like i particularly am excited to go back and they have never asked me back so it works out fine for everybody how did it affect your relationship with the game of magic is it like going to work at a McDonald's and then once you see what it's like inside the factory, you just never want to eat a Big Mac again? Or like, how, 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 how would you describe that, that sort of experience? I mean, it's, well, you know, again, I was still writing my column afterwards. Sure. They had hired a guy after I went inside and that didn't work out. And so they asked me to rewrite it while they searched for somebody else. So it was kind of weird in that I was still promoting the game, even though I I guess been laid off technically or had not had my contract renewed. Um, and by the way, one of the things, and I, I hope they're getting better about this, but one of the things they would do is just have these interns like continually renewing their contracts. You know, they did that for me too. It was a three month gig or six month gig and they would add another month and add another month. And it was just, it's a hard way to live. if You don't, don't know if you're going to get it hired or not. But, um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the hard work there. They do. I have a lot of respect for, they care. They really do care about the game. It's kind of funny because when when the players see cards and they start getting up in arms about stuff, it kind of goes over Wizard's head in the sense that the way their production schedules are, they're already working you know multiple sets ahead of time. There's nothing they can do about it. It's not like Hearthstone where they can do a, a hot fix right off the bat and nerf something or buff something. Mm -hmm. And so when people say this card's overpowered, they're like, okay, well it's in print. It's a real physical thing, and that's how it's going to be forever. And then I guess the companion mechanic kind of changed that rule. But um, there was a like the outrage of people, they would never take that seriously as far as cards were concerned. But if it was something about tournaments or scandals, you know, that would be something they were interested in. But they, they really did care. They really wanted to make a game that mm -hmm. people enjoyed playing and wanted to come back for. 
Yeah, I guess intentions are good, but intentions themselves are not usually enough in any kind of uh, large, large enough environment, right? If Magic was a little bit less of an amazing game, I think they would have had to work harder to get get their stuff right and fine tune things. But because Magic is so forgiving and it's such a good game, um, they right. can get away with cutting corners on internal processes like that. Every every set I was there, there was always like the week before it had to go to had to go to the publisher. Um, there was some emergency, you know, something had to be added or changed. And they've told stories about this. You know, that's how Umizawa's Jite showed up because they had to make a change the last second. And that's how I got super overpowered. And I, it, every every set I worked on, um, I saw that too, that there was just their deadlines always snuck up on them and they had to make some fast moves really quickly. Hopefully oh, that's sure. not the same anymore. Yeah, I also really, I mean, for all the things that people criticize Wizards about and a lot of the criticisms are fair, I think Wizards, at least like folks like Mark and Gavin Burhey, they seem they do a good job of like describing what they have done and outlining some of the mistakes and like, and showing some of those, uh, what do you call them? Like designer chats where like, you know, they, they wanted to make Tarmogoyf like GG instead of G1, but they last minute, they added like a toughness and removed the toughness. And that's all she wrote, like in terms of history, but like um, some of those decisions were just like very close. And I, I do understand that designers have to make a lot of decisions and a lot of, in, in not a lot of time. So uh, things do happen, right? I remember one of my one of my projects I worked on there was to look at a lot of the old sets that were going off from design to development. And I was really curious if I could find a pattern of colors that needed the least amount of development work, like how often design got it right on like the first couple iterations. And then I could say like, look, you guys are great designing green, you're great designing red, blue and black always trip you up and you need extra time. You know, maybe you can look at designing blue and black first so that, you know, green and red, because they need less time in the in the development process. And I had these pie charts and everything. I thought it was pretty cool. And then I showed it to one of my managers. He's like, this this is nothing. This is pointless. Don't bother showing it to anybody. And so I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't. And I don't know if that would have done anything. But that was kind of like the yeah. thing. Like, I don't, it never got into my record that I did this project because he just said, just bury it because it's, it's worthless. And, and yeah. that's what I did. But I was I was very sensitive because I could tell right away like the mad scramble that always happened, and I was just looking for ways to not have it be so quite intense as I always saw it. I mean, people were like working late and pretty scared on the sets I was working on. I'm sure it's improved. You know, my my knowledge is so out of date. I'm sure it's gotten better, mm. but that was something that I was definitely sensitive to at the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's one thing that a lot of uh you know, cultures could use, I think is like a little bit more, like I could imagine like you could put all these things into a big data store and just, just, uh, I don't know, like you could create all these insights and be a lot more data driven in, in analyzing these things. Like it, it wouldn't even have to be an intern or somebody doing that. Like if you could create a data warehouse of all these things and maybe it's just like my background, I tend to look at these things as like, of course, I'm not saying give everything over to the robots or the machines and, you know, judgment day and all that. But I, I would hope that like they, they, like there's so much you can analyze from all the data, like the gameplay, uh, every step in the design pipeline. And it's just like, I guess, unless you have a key decision maker who's like really advocating for this stuff, it just never gets done based on my experience working in large corporations. There, there's a lot of inertia. And frankly, I think that was the first and only corporate job I've really had. I went to the public defenders after law school, and that was a really 
agile, independent place. You know, you just had your own cases and you worked them up as you thought was best. Uh, you had, you know, mentors and colleagues who would be happy to give you advice, but you were you were on your own. You made decisions, and that's and so it's been since then. Yeah, I would, I would sure. have a tough time, frankly, <laughs> work going back to an environment like that at this point after being on my own for so long. Mm-hmm. So jumping, shifting gears a little bit, I know that I'll be straight up with you. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because I think you do an excellent job on your podcast, so much so that I really wanted to explore your background because I I think how you're able to do your podcast, your magic podcast, says a lot about you as a person, just in terms of how you interact with people, like all the episodes I've heard, they're extremely fluid and conversational. You do a lot of research and, okay, let me try to boil this down to a question. So uh, maybe let's start from, what was your main motivation behind doing the podcast in the first place, uh, gathering stories? Well, for a long time, I wanted to write a book about early magic. There's kind of the same stories that I was doing a podcast about. Um, I felt like I was pretty well suited to do that because I had the access to everybody through my history of the game and because I know how to write a little bit. And so I felt comfortable taking on that project. And then it, I had a couple problems. One was I didn't really have like a cohesive through line for the book. I couldn't really think of a way, aside from just a collection of stories, that it made sense together. You could do a rough chronology, but it was still just kind of this dry stories without something pulling it all together. And I just couldn't figure out a way that it made sense. And I, I, maybe I could have come up with it eventually. But the other problem was that it's apparently a lot of work to write a book. You know, I just looked into it and getting it published and all the rest of it. And it just seemed with my family and my career and the likely failure of getting any financial traction with it, like the reward for putting in all those hours was likely going to be very nil. Um, I, I kind of abandoned the book project and then I just thought, I still want to do this. I still want to tell stories. What's something that's a little more accessible? And then a podcast became the obvious next choice. That makes sense. And based on what we've talked about so far, was it easy, challenging to get all the guests you've had? Because you've, you've had like quite a number of people. You've had uh, Jamie Wakefield recently. You had Rosewater. You had Jesper, Richard Garfield, Peter Atkinson. Like, was it fairly easy for you to, to get access to these folks? Because it's not easy, it, it seems, from the outside. Well, um, so... I'll, I'll kind of give you two answers. The first one is it wasn't that hard because I, I have enough. If I didn't know them directly, I had people who knew them directly. Um, like Mark Rosewater and I had lunch. And it's funny because we, we, so many, we often butted heads when I was working there. And, uh, and like, I just, I thought he didn't like me at all. And then we had lunch, you know, a couple of years ago and he was like, you know, I, I don't think I treated you very well there. I'm sorry about that. I'm like, well, thanks. I'm kind of over it, but I appreciate it, you know. And yeah. and another manager apologized to me too recently, which was nice too. And you know, like I said, I'm sure I wasn't the perfect employee either, but um, but he was really interested. Like he he loves magic. He is just such a fan of magic, and so he knew I could put together something that was competent. And he we talked, and he had some ideas for things. And he's like, you know, if you need help getting into contact with people. Um, I'm happy to help because I want to promote the game. You know, that's that's something I really am passionate about. Mm-hmm. And so 
I, I actually had Richard Garfield's address from way back when, and then I lost it, and I said, listen, Mark, I, I've had it before, I've talked to him, but you know, can you help me out? And he did, and, um, and so I connected with him. And you know, you have to have an in, you have to have something that lets you open the door, and for him, I was just, I've known you for 15 or 20 years, I mean, not like no, no, but you know, I, I met you a long time ago, and I'm a big fan, and I also I sat in your class when you taught at the University of Washington, um, so ah, know, that's was, a good connection. Yeah, yeah, that was a good connection. But like, I didn't go to that class because I wanted to, you know, eight years later invite him to a podcast. It was because I was generally interested in what he was teaching, which is the theory sure. of game design, right? So there's that authenticity. It's not like I'm doing this for some kind of edge or for some kind of you know goodwill down the road. It's because I'm generally interested in what he has to say, and I, I hope when I ask people that that it comes through that I have a genuine interest in what you have to say. Um, I was Facebook friends with Peter Atkinson. We have a lot of mutual friends. Um, Jamie Wakefield. I didn't really know him, but I, I followed his work and he might've followed mine too at the time. I really never asked him that, but, but we were Facebook friends and I just reached out. Um, Jesper, I think I got on Facebook too. Um, Scaff, I had known from Facebook and he also talked to class with Richard Garfield. So there was that in too. Mm-hmm. Um, who else was there? Oh, and Rosewater and Brian David Marshall have known forever. But at the same time, the other answer to the question is I didn't get everybody I wanted. There was people I reached out to that said, I'm not interested. And so it was like, it was, I did seven episodes, but I had 10 in my mind. And so some people just said no, and I wasn't able to make that connection. They originally said yes, and then almost everybody said yes and then said no. Got it. For those who have not had a chance to listen yet, what is the kind of mission statement or thesis behind the the series of episodes on your podcast? It's stories from when the game was developed. It was stories from the people who designed the game, who produced the game. People Before there was magic, there was these people working on magic. What did that look like when it came to fruition? How, how What was the response from the world? And what did they do to, to grow it to what it is today? Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that in your mind, it was going to be 10 episodes, like it was going to be like a complete arc. So as you're, as you're doing them, or the ones that you're able to record people that said, yes, are you finding that, like, these threads are, are coming together in, in some kind of uh, coherent way for you, in your mind? Yeah, the beginning was easy, because I wanted Richard Garfield and Peter Atkinson and Jesper Mirfurs and Scaff Elias, because there there was like, you know, they were pillars. What I wanted was every episode to represent a a personification of an aspect of the game, you know, so I wanted the art guy, and I wanted the designer, and I wanted the CEO, and I wanted Scaff, who was the brand manager, and he did a ton more, but um, but that that was the way I was picking my guess was like a personification, an aspect. And then as I was doing it, it kind of shifted into more pro tour and tournament stuff, which looking back makes complete sense because that's my interest and that's my background. Um, but it, it wasn't exactly planned the way. It just kind of turned out the way with the questions I asked. Mm-hmm. You know, Jamie was the tournament report writer. Brian David Marshall was the guy who had the store, you know, things like that. Yeah. So in your mind, you have a very, do you have like a complete, product like okay like you know four more episodes with these people or 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 personifications of these themes and then you know i can call it a day kind of thing 
I mean, I'm done at this point. I'm not going to harangue the people who said no or who said yes originally then said no. You know, a lot of them, one, one guy whose name is Mike Long said he was interested and then I just couldn't get a hold of him anymore. Maybe he just changed his mind. Um, but everybody else I talked to, I'm not going to name their names, but they, they were expressing interest and then the pandemic happened and they just had other things on their mind or other obligations or less time and I'm not going to try to change their mind. I really wanted to show a lot of respect and gratitude to the guests. So I was never there to try to trick them. I mean, I, you know, I'd ask them questions that could have emotional answers or controversial answers, but I was always there to tell their stories and to hear what they had to say. And I, I never wanted them to feel like it was gotcha journalism or anything like that. I really just wanted them to get the chance to, to answer the questions. And so I, it would be against my philosophy to like try to persuade them or press them if they're not interested. It just leads mm-hmm. to a bad interview. I've done it before. It's not fun. It, it's uh, it's challenging, right? Because from what I gather from listening to the episodes, like a lot of the guests have talked about their place in the history of magic so many times. So is there something that you try to do in terms of just making it fresh for them? Because I, I think one of the things that, <laughs> at the risk of answering my own question, like I think I feel like one of the things you do well is like you do a lot of in-depth research and so you're able to like ask about very specific things and then they're more delighted to answer these things rather than just a lot of general questions that they may have answered like 100 times before yeah there's a there's a number of answers to your question um going into all of them i knew about 70 percent of the answers to the questions i asked but the way you ask them the order you ask them uh, makes a difference because i'm thinking about the audience I'm not thinking about this for myself. I'm thinking about the people that are listening to it. And so I want to ask things in a way that creates a story, usually chronologically, but you know, sometimes there's little spikes and little deviations that you explore with them. Um, and so that leads to potentially asking things you don't know or l- being an active listener. And that's, that's something that I recommend strongly is actually listening to the answers and then you know, following up as necessary. But if there's something that I'm interested in learning about, then I'm going to ask him about it. And hopefully if it's interesting to me, it'll be interesting then to talk about it. I don't, I know I don't, I don't care what they had for breakfast that morning. I care about like what, what was something that was really surprising to you? Like, wow, that, that must've been shocking. What, what did that feel like? You know, I, I ask about emotions a lot. Like what was that feeling at the time? And where was that going there? Um, and, you know, I've been surprised and it was, it was fun to be surprised. And what's, uh, what's a, what's an example of you being like pleasantly surprised, like any specific answers they had to a question? Yeah. The one, yeah. The answer I give to that is when I was talking to Richard Garfield and he said that he introduced Auntie because there are some introverts in his math club and they didn't, they weren't comfortable doing trading. And so we wanted to create a way that people who didn't like social contacts could still have a way to change the cards in their deck. And I was like, that's that's such an amazing like sensitivity to the people you were hanging out with. And then you alter the rules extremely substantially just to accommodate that. I thought that was fascinating. I never heard that as an explanation for Auntie before. That's that's really awesome. And now I'm going to inter- interject myself into this, uh, what you just said. I think some of my fondest, fondest memories of Magic was playing with my younger brother. Like, because we got started in a revised edition, like, the anti-cards. I feel like anti-cards are almost sort of forgotten in the in the hallway of magic history. Like, I remember, like, really enjoying 
anti games way back then with uh, what was it demonic attorney and uh, mm-hmm. like some of these things that really up the stakes. And I remember like it really mattered because we just had our we bought the two player set with the uh, the I don't know what they were made of, but the 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 large box with the the glass counters in the in the pouch that was our, our very first uh, exposure to magic. Uh, this must have been like when revised. I don't know when it was like 93, 94 or something like that. And man, those, those battles, like they were so, <laughs> I never felt as invested in magic as I did back then. You know, <laughs> it's just like being a kid and just like, you know, I might lose this card. Cause like one time we did Annie and I think uh Sengir vampire came up and it was just like, I can't lose this card to my brother. Like I need that card. I need to keep it. I don't, I don't think I ever played like harder in my life. Like, you know, I, I played GPs and, online events ptqs like i don't think it 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 never was that and that's just nostalgia but like i feel like anti-cards are really like like i don't know like a lot of players don't even they didn't they some players weren't even alive back then so it's like you know they they couldn't have known and uh you know i don't know know, I, i completely understand and i agree with you and the wild thing was the original field deck tournaments they were introducing around then uh, fourth edition, maybe revised. They was played for anti as part of the rules. At the beginning of your sealed deck tournament, you had to anti a card, and so if you oh, anti really? land, you were sunk because they never had enough land anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, you'd get like a storm of freets or whatever the card was, um, or demonic contract or something, and yeah, it was it was game. You could play that in your sealed deck tournament and do whatever you want. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was it was a wild time. That that was wild. Like so, I was a I was very much a filthy casual. Uh, so I didn't play any tournaments in the nineties. Uh, and then I, I went to college because and I stopped playing Magic. I thought Magic was for nerds. I didn't want to be associated with that stuff anymore. And I got back, I guess, when you became an intern. Like that was like Time Sparrow blocked in two thousand seven. And I think I played my first tournament in two thousand and eight. So I missed that whole period in the nineties or like the early days of organized play like other than reading about it in was it the sideboard i think i had the subscriptions of the duelist uh when mark roosevelt was still making those uh puzzles like magic the puzzling in the in the in the back page but uh yeah i i missed it on that whole that whole period but anyway that's enough about me like uh let's go back to your 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 well, podcast me, well james yeah. i'm sorry i didn't listen to all your episodes before we got on um but why why are you doing your your podcast what is appealing to you about humans and magic so the the real answer is like I'm not saying I'm going to give you an unreal answer. I don't know why I just used that term, but like I'm trying to say like there's a short answer to this. You're telling which, me what it, you're going to tell me before you edit it out of the final cut. That's fine. Exactly. I'm going to record like another version and just just upload that later, but uh really it was like after I wrote my first book cuz the the first book I wrote Magic the Addiction was like just my own experiences playing magic and I I wrote the book and as you said like writing books takes a heck of a long time <laughs> a lot of time a lot of self-editing reflection and and torment honestly uh you know i i was very stupid in was it 2015 or whenever i wrote the book like oh yeah i, I can write blog articles how hard is it to write a book like i just you just put these things together and you got a book but no it wasn't that easy um i did it and i realized that uh well i realized two things like number one i should not have written the book because like I had not had enough lived experience to really 
I didn't need to write a memoir. And, you know, since I wrote the book, I, I've been exposed to so many more things in Magic too. Like, for example, like playing Arena, playing Magic Online, traveling for Magic tournaments last year and things like that. Like, these are things that are all in the book because I didn't experience them yet. Um, and then the second thing was just like, I've read so, I've written so much about myself. I think it's really time to just write about other people. And so it was one of my friends, Julian, who's uh, uh, Julian Knob, who's a big big fan of the legacy format we were both big legacy fans and i was talking to him one day about like i wrote this book it's exhausting what i I think i really want to just like not put myself in the center of anything for a while and then and then i just said hey wouldn't it be great if like i did like oral history of magic or like talk to other people and just focus on other people's stories because i my thesis has always been like everybody has a story right everyone has an interesting story doesn't matter who you are you don't have to be like read duke or someone super famous in magic to to have a meaningful experience and so julian was just like yeah you should just do it and that's that's how i kind of started doing the the podcast about three and a half years ago and uh it's it i definitely feel different about the podcast now than i did back then because back then it was just a lot of like impulsive like hey i want to talk to people and i want to network so let's do a podcast uh i think over time i've become a lot more intentional like okay if i'm doing an episode here's why i'm doing it like here's the outline and and so it's a lot different now which is why i like uh what you try to do with your podcast because like it's it seems to have a very clear like here's my thesis this is why i'm doing it you know like it it came it's sort of like founded on the idea of having a book or like the early history of magic and whereas for me it was never that that uh focused you know and so that that's that's kind of maybe our a little bit of difference in our our approach i don't know you sent me some when we were talking like what six months ago nine months ago before you published humans and magic and you sent me some transcripts and introductions to look at for editing and i think a lot of my response was like this is good but what's your purpose you know what are you what are you trying to achieve and it really is how i try to approach things like i do want things to be purposeful it's kind of how i play it's i, I try to make decisions like that in life um and it sounds like sounds like you're coming along with that too on your current podcast or your current philosophies on it. Yeah, it's kind of evolved, especially this year, because I'm one of these uh, introverted people that likes having interactions, but not. I don't want to have too much of it. But I, I think, especially with how things are right now, I'm not able to be in North America or play magic tournaments. Like the podcast has become a... <laughs> almost like a coping mechanism like hey you know here's my excuse to talk to somebody and about magic and you know because you can talk to them on a messenger but i also feel very strongly that uh with the way social is now social media like podcasts are really the last bastion to have like meaningful discussions with people anymore and you're not going to ever get canceled if you like if you believe in cancel culture you're never going to get canceled by saying something in a podcast because honestly no one's gonna people are just gonna look at your tweet and and decide very quickly like noah or james you're you're bad or you're you're good but no one's gonna be like i had a joke with uh one of my guests in the last episode uh, ellie and you know we're saying like you know anything we say like two hours into the podcast we can say whatever now because you know no one's really gonna listen this far it's really just just for us and so I feel like podcast is like the last place you can actually explore real human inter- like one-on-one stuff without like it's just a conversation and we just happen to record it. Maybe I'm simplifying it, but that's how I feel. 
I know what you're saying. Um, I'll, I'll give you two responses. The first is having me on here might have might test that theory a little bit. You might you might find some people saying, oh, not Noah, he's trash. Um, but also, you know, you asked me how I'm doing with my family. It's interesting that, you know, we're we're treading water. You know, we're doing OK with the pandemic and everything else. Everybody has their own challenges right now. You know, people who have no partner and no kids are feeling extremely lonely. Um, people with just a partner and nothing else are feeling like cabin fever. Like I want to interact with other people besides just a single person. Parents are feeling overwhelmed with how much they have to do with work and homeschooling and all the rest of it. You know, everybody has their own unique challenges and it's just awful for everybody. Um, and I think your idea of talking to people and having substantive conversations is like the healthiest thing I've ever heard of for dealing with this right now. So, so good for you. You found that you found. No, no, I mean, no, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I do have a partner, and so yeah, I, I am sort of in that cabin fever. I mean, she's at work right now, so, I, you know, I'll be honest with you. We've had issues in our relationship this year because, like, sometimes like that super close proximity can actually not be great all the time. You know, so I, I think it'd be weird if you didn't. Frankly, it would be like you guys have already moved on if you're not having any kind of friction at this point. No, everybody is having challenges, right? new challenges that a relationship has never been tested with. It makes perfect sense. Maybe it's time to have kids, you know, just do something different. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I'm, I think we're definitely close to that, that stage. Um, it's yeah. It, it, at the risk of sounding very uh, grandiose, like, you know, I, I've had ups and downs over the years. I know you've written about, your ups and downs. I don't think I've quite gone to like capital D depressed, but I've had like, you know, thoughts about like, okay, what's the meaning of life? I, it, it was really spark when I read, uh, was that book? Sapiens. You just made me realize how small I was. It was like a couple of years ago. It was just like, you know, we're just all grains of sand in, in the grand scheme of things. Right. And uh, I had these moments where it's just like, what's, what's the, what's the point? Just a lot of things. And I've sort of come circled all the way back. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's who's a parent now. Like, I think honestly, like, there's so much like 21st century, like we got to find happiness, fulfillment. But I think at the end of the day, it's really just like, can you have kids? Can you spread your seed? Can you like create a meaningful next generation and give them the skills and uh, knowledge to succeed and be happy about it. And I think that's really, that's really all there is to the the meaning of life. Like I, I don't think there's much more to that, you know? Well, when you, when you started your parents of magic podcast, I hope you invite me on. We'll, we'll talk about <laughs> how not easy it is to play magic and also be a, a parent. Um, I yeah. do, I do think there are people who choose not to have kids or physically can't have kids. And I think they can have meaningful lives and affect the world. I think, I think you're right in the sense of the purpose of life is to affect people and help people and, you know, be a part of the community. And whether it's your own little family or whether it's community at large, I, I think you've got the right idea. I just wouldn't say that if you're not having kids, your your life's not worth living because some people don't. I think they're still contributing members of society. And I was kind of half kidding too, like being bored or having relationship problems is a really bad reason to have kids. Um, I'm sure we're, I'm sure we're going to see a, a boom in and kids being born, um, you know, December, January, whatever. But uh, yeah, like if you guys are ready, great. I, I love talking to people about parenting and things like that, but don't do it mm -hmm. because you're having relationship problems. It's really a bad idea. 
Yeah, I'm sort of on the fence on that because I also have talked to friends who are just very honest with me. They're like, you know, if it wasn't for us having kids, we would have separated. And uh, that's like also a very real thing. But at the same time, it's also scary if you think about it. So. Well, like, ask, see where they are in 10 years from now or something like that. I've heard these horror stories of parents who hate each other staying together till the kids are in college and then they divorced instantly. And the kids knew, you know, from age five on that the parents didn't like each other, weren't a good yeah. fit for each other. You know, there's, I don't know. I think there's there's ways to be happy. Um, and I think just adding an, another kid to that, like, it's a lot of work to have kids, especially in the first couple of years. And if you don't have some kind of foundation there, it's it's not likely going to withstand it in the long term. Maybe. I mean, maybe it will. Maybe maybe that's the trick. But um, I just I hate doing that to kids. You know, if they weren't happy beforehand, I just hate putting kids in unhappy houses if they can avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, Noah, going back to a part of your answer from the, the previous question, I just want to say that I never try to filter out guests if for any reason like i don't mind having guests who are controversial or like i just <laughs> want to talk to people that are that i'm just curious to talk to like i don't try to be controversial is, i just i maybe, just have maybe, strong yeah. feelings sometimes <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe this is just like me being this is also again i can say this because no one's gonna listen to it it's like we're an hour into a podcast but i i'm a big fan of like the the rogan method where it's like he just he there's a lot of issues with joe rogan but it's just like he's just naturally a curious dude and he has all kinds of people. And I know people are saying like the Rogan is trash. Don't listen to him because you know, he's had this guest on and I, I, you know, I, I don't listen to every episode, but um, I, I just want to say like, I've interviewed people like, um, like actually this is a really good example. Like Austin Bursevich, who is the, he was the player that was uh number one yeah. last year. He was, he was banned for a while for that was uh, a good being a whistleblower. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I had people warn me, like, don't, don't interview this guy. And I'm, you know, I, I wanted to interview him because I wanted to talk to him. It's like, I don't agree with everything he did. Or, um, I remember talking also to Matt Sperling. Like I, I, I find Sperling's humor very funny. Cause I think he's just like a master troll. And he, he actually had to tell me on the podcast. Like, I'm, I actually don't think of myself as a troll. I think of myself as a contrarian. Anyway, we went into all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I found him like to be really funny and, and, you know, like very in a non PC humorous kind of way. And I had people like, just tell me too. It's like, I'm not going to listen to this, your episode with Sperling. Like this guy's trash. And I'm just like, well, I mean, if, if you think that, you know, you're going to completely dismiss somebody just because of their name or what some joke they made. Like, I'm not sure I want you to listen to, to this podcast anyway, you know? So I, I, I'm totally open to, yeah, I, I think whoever, he's great. Whoever's so. listening to this, who didn't listen to him, turn this off, go listen to that one. That's going to be much better. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just like, I, I don't, I, it's, uh, you know, it seems like people are very, some people can be very close, closed minded. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard, right? Cause I, I don't know what you've, I honestly didn't do enough research on you. I don't know what you've done in <laughs> your past that warrants people like saying Noah should not ever be listened to. Uh, like, I don't know. There's yeah. Like I'm what sure happens? Oh, I don't know. There's, I'm sure there's stuff. I've been doing this game for a long time. I'm sure there's things I used like to you be didn't really... concede to somebody once in a tournament and now you're just on the, the, the blacklist or something. <laughs> Um, I don't think so. Let's just, I mean, there's things, I don't know. Like I used to be really hate losing. I used to hate losing, hate losing. 
And, you know, we can talk about my philosophy with magic and philosophy with people. We probably should talk about magic at some point in this podcast, I guess. Yeah, but, I mean, let's let's talk about it. I mean, if it if, if it's relevant, but please, please finish your yeah, answer. Well, I don't to interrupt. I'm just trying to think of like an example of when I was controversial. You know, I, I just like. I was a very relentless player back then. Like I was I was really trying to win. I wouldn't cheat, but I was I was trying to win. I had a talking game that was good. Um, and. You know, I would play philosophically, I think, differently than a lot of my opponents. It was just like I was really 100% focused on winning. And sometimes they'd be surprised by that. Um, and, you know, at the times or sometimes I would just get really mad when I lost. I wasn't I wasn't like throw cards or anything. I wouldn't like jump the table. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you know, this was bad luck. You were a bad player. This was really upsetting to me. And I would I know I burned some bridges or at least made some people unhappy when I was like upset. You know, I lose the finals of a ptq or to get out of the top eight or something i'd be like this really was like affected me and i really didn't like it and i was it was because i was you know unhealthy emotionally at the time uh, but i know a lot of people i don't know a lot but some people are like well this guy's just a complete asshole because he just can't handle the, the loss as well and at the time it was totally true um but like something controversial uh you know like i don't know like nine years ago or something there was uh, a pro tour and they changed they had a format announced it was either extended or type two or whatever and then they changed it because the format was so miserable it was like Cobblade, you know jace the mind sculptor uh-huh. and squadron hawks or whatever and it was just awful and they changed it because it was such a terrible format and i felt so bad for the players because at the time i don't, I don't know if i had a kid or if i was in law school or something something was like if I had qualified and I hadn't, but if I had qualified, I know it would have just been impossible to test. And if they had changed the format a few weeks before the event, um, I would have just been sunk. It would have been like any, mm-hmm. any scrap of free time I had to put to it would have just been wasted. And I wouldn't have been able to like recover from that. And right. so I felt really bad for it. And so I wrote an article for star city. I was just like, this is a mistake. Wizards is not treating its players. Well, they should really be thinking about the players and, you know, I got into like a little thing with Aaron Forsyth, and he was like, you know the point of the Pro Tour. You know it's not to have a good experience with the players. It's to market formats. And why, like, if this is, no one's going to watch this. No one's going to buy cards. Like, why would we do this? And he was totally right. That is the point of the Pro Tour. And I was totally right that mm-hmm. this was miserable for the players. And so we were both mm-hmm. right. And, you know, he, he's the business owner, and he would think what's best for the company. But um, some people are like, yeah, this does suck for the players. And other people are like, why would you have us watch this miserable pro tour and why is it bad for magic? And so that, that one was controversial and people went both directions on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just, I felt bad for the people. I really wanted to say something because I just didn't want any player, even though it wasn't even me, I wasn't even involved in it. I just didn't want any player to have to be in that situation in the future. I mean, that's how I feel in general. It's just like your reality and someone's reality could be different, but they're still valid in their own right. Like you're, you were right and he was right. But it's just at the end of the day, it's just like it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to speak your mind, right? Just like he shouldn't, he should be able to speak his mind. Yeah, I think he felt a little betrayed that I was like saying something publicly about those kind of processes, you know, because I was, I, I, I was, and I think I still am an ally to the game. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm an ally to the players too, and I, I just felt bad for them. Yeah, were were you a uh, you you're you're a Minnesotan, right? Yeah, I. I Technically, was born because, in South Dakota um, when my my father was a speechwriter for 
the governor in South Dakota and then he, he got fired and then we moved to Minnesota okay. and we're bounced around Minnesota for a while. And, yeah, I know the lore is that at least it was uh, it was covered in some podcasts uh, that you and Jerry Thompson kind of played in a similar area growing up, or you knew him when he was very young. I did know him when he was young. Um, I he's younger than me, and so I think when he was really becoming a pro and really becoming elite, I had kind of taken a step back. I might have moved away by then. I know when he was at his peak, he I was gone. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, we we overlap some, but not a ton, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know if we ever went to the same pro tour, at least back in the okay. day. So, what was your story like? How did you how did you find Magic the Gathering? How did you get into that competitive scene initially? So it was 1994, and I was going to be a freshman in high school, and I, I was there some like writing course or some pre freshman course in high school that my folks wanted me to take. And and then I, I went there and I did that. And it was like a two-week class and there was people who were playing Magic. And there was actually a newspaper article about it I had read a, a month or two before then that looked really interesting. It was like Circle Protection Blue. It was like, whoa, what's this picture in the newspaper about? And it just was like a little blurb about this game that's taking off. And then I saw people playing it for real and I, I bought some starter decks. And uh, yeah, that was my first introduction to it. Actually, it was really my first introduction because I opened a Shiv and Dragon, which was, if you may remember, just the best card you could open possibly. These two gentlemen said, we want your Shiv and Dragon, but we have a good trade for you. We're going to give you two Sea Serpents and two Flights and two Fire Breathing. So it's basically like two Shiv and Dragons because you can just make your own for your one Shiv and Dragon. I was like, yeah, Yeah, that sounds great. Great. Yeah. And then, then I found out, you know, a little bit later and yeah, but... Yeah, so that was that was my very first introduction. So from the from the beginning, you were a blue mage and you got fleeced. So that that's like very <laughs> appropriate, I guess. Um, I don't know if I was a blue mage. The dragon looked pretty cool. It was great art, you know, the three yeah. three fingered claw, whatever. Um, I don't. I think it was red, black, blue. I think those were my colors. I think I made a red, black, blue deck, and I really enjoyed that. I knew. I remember at one time I traded for a tropical island, underground sea, and volcanic islands. Not four of each, just one of each, because you know, why would you need four? But I had one of each in my deck, and that was felt really nice when I drew one, which should have been a clue that I probably should get more of them, but I never did for that that weird deck. Skeleton ship I really loved. Yeah. 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 So what was, the, what was the progression from just casual into competitive play? I am trying to remember, I think. Who is the person or store that was the gateway drug into that? I think it was a store called The Source. Um, and I don't remember the name of the city it was in. Uh, it actually moved around a couple times. St. Paul or one of the suburbs. I grew up in St. Paul. Um, or at least I was in St. Paul at the time. But um, I think it was The Source. And there was also a store called Schinders. That was a chain that went under. Um, the Source had people that played. The Schinders just had like singles for sale. I don't think there was much of a play area, but I remember going to their cases and just looking because they had them, they had them on the wall, like facing out, uh, you know, the cards and sleeves, like legends cards, which I hadn't, hadn't really seen in dark cards because I got into revised. And I was just like fascinated. I was just like reading every card and just imagining things. And it just got me excited. Um, and then I don't know where, and there was, 
you know, tournaments. And I really found a resonance to that. And I just kept going out. Eventually, the store where I really cut my teeth was a store called Dreamers, which is owned by Jason Webster, who is a big store owner in Minnesota. I think he still has some stuff. Um, but that was where that was where things got were really competitive and that really upped my game. Okay, so were you like living and breathing magic? Where like how how often oh. did you go there? <laughs> was it yes, I was living and breathing magic. Um, you know, there was like a couple aspects to it. I when I was really getting into it, probably a sophomore in high school, junior maybe. Um, yeah, every every day I was reading everything I could find. I was playing what I could find. I was playing solitaire. I was making decks to play against myself. Um, I was oh, on wow. IRC. I was playing That's an apprentice. Yeah. I was well, you know, I had just found something that I could really like give my complete focus to. Um, and I think it's just kind of part of my philosophy or my, my brain is just like, if I'm going to do something, you know, I want to do it right. I'll do the research. I'll do the work. But yeah, there was, it was everything I could do. Um, I would write decks on napkins. If I was like at a restaurant, I was like, I have an idea. I'm going to write a deck list on a napkin. Just a and then moment stuff, of inspiration. Yeah. Stuff it in my pocket and see if it's any good, you know, play it on IRC or apprentice. And, um, I would watch people play, you know, just go to go to events and just watch people. If I was out, and I would just watch and see if I could pick up something. And I was always just trying to find like a speck of information that I could tuck away for when it was relevant. You know, I just was like building that book of knowledge. You know, here's an interaction. That's interesting. I'm going to store that away. Here's a rules interaction that's not intuitive. I'm going to store that away. And just kept like building my, my base of knowledge um, for it. There was a, <laughs> the group I was ended up playing with was an extremely competitive group. I went to this tournament one time and uh, I played, what I found out later was like the king guy. He was the best, best guy in the area. And uh, we sat down and, you know, he beat me really quickly and he called out to his friends at some other tables. It's like, how quickly did I beat this guy? You know, this, right. this new I remember meet. that back in the day, all the, all the trash talking and just, oh, yeah, just yeah. rampant stuff like that. Yeah, and then I beat him the second game, and I called to them like, "How quick was that one?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so then he's like, "Okay, whatever." Then I don't—I have no idea who won our match, but you know, then he—he he knew I—I I could push back a little bit, and right. so then I fell in with them, and we're all you know, roughly the same age within a few years, plus or minus. Yeah. And yeah, it was like that because we were friends and we were playing together, but it was also like any scrap of vulnerability they would exploit mercilessly. You know, you misspeak, you make a mistake. Um, in magic, out of magic, you know, they would be on top of you. So I, I learned yeah. to be pretty guarded around them and, yeah. you know, for better, or for worse, that's, I'm still kind of like that now, but, um, that was really like an environment where I, I learned to be competitive and learn to look for, you know, advantages. We, weaknesses to exploit, right? Like whatever it takes to, yeah. uh, within legitimate means to win. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, so apparently uh, a lot of them were actually huge cheaters back then, which I never got into, but I didn't even like uh -huh. realize it, but yeah, that was, that was so, very common back then. So I guess you absorbed all the things like, you know, like you had mentioned table talk, right? Like there's legitimate ways to like talk to people to get information about, uh, what they're playing or how they would play. Right. Things like that. Oh yeah. Like constantly. Well, the thing is I love talking to people. I, I like I'm not good at small talk. I'm not good at things like that, but like substantive talking, I really love it. Um, what I would do, you know, I'd play these tournaments, I'd play constantly. And then afterwards we'd go to a 24 hour restaurant 
and you know I'd get a sandwich or something, and then I'd just go up to strangers' tables and just say, "Hey, can we talk? I just want to you know ask questions." <laughs> we had this game. Me and this friend oh, just man. had this game where we get scraps of paper. And we'd write questions down, and they would write questions down. We put them in the middle, and then we just take turns drawing them out and answering them. And I just talked to people from all walks of life doing this. And it's it's kind of like looking back into it, it's a little self-selecting because who's at a 24-hour restaurant at you know midnight or something? Yeah. It's not like a complete sampling of people in the world, but um, you know, I love talking to people from different backgrounds, and it was it was amazing. And it was the same thing. I'd like. I'd put away information, and I'd learn something about a culture or a philosophy or something, and I just kind of store it away. And I and it was really good practice for me because I actually do a lot of interviewing in my job and having that base of knowledge about people from all walks of life is really helpful. Did it did it also help you maybe as a as a younger person like just you know with girls or like just just <laughs> that just that fearlessness of just talking to people you know? Well, it's well, it definitely wasn't. I mean, fearlessness isn't quite the right word. Well, let me answer your first question. No, it did not help with girls whatsoever. I was I was not a dater in high school. Maybe in college, I started picking stuff up, but um, it was like it was somewhat protectiveness because I w- I did have a genuine curiosity. I really wanted to learn how, how people was, but it was also like I can better be guarded and better be protective of myself if I know more about what people will find weird or strange or if I'll look vulnerable, you know. So it's also like creating those shields when you know more about how, how people see things, you can know what not to do that kind of thing. Right. Um, I was, re- I, I was told this, like when I was a young kid that I was very, very extroverted. Um, you know, it'd always be like dancing and acting and pretending um, in, in like family functions and stuff. And my family would just say like, what are you doing? You look, you look really dumb. Stop doing that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't feel good. And so I learned to not be so mm-hmm. effusive and expressive. And it's funny, too, because my daughter is very similar. She will she loves to make up stuff. She loves to name things and sing about things. And, you know, her singing's I would say, not not great. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm really trying to be conscious of, like, not trying to squelch her interest in mm-hmm. having an active imagination, wanting to perform for people. Sometimes right. you got to, you know, she'll tell this really convoluted story about how a unicorn found a mermaid in a tree and i'm like no you just gotta brush your teeth we're going to bed now and you know <laughs> i'm just like you gotta brush your teeth like stop it you gotta yeah. and you know it, it goes back and forth but i i knew it didn't feel good growing up and so i'm, I'm trying yeah. my best to be supportive of her i think she's gonna be a theater kid but we'll see yeah that's so fascinating is just how you know you live your life as a as a kid and, and you're very conscious of trying to not uh, I mean, obviously, you, you that that impacts how you parent, um, and and it's also fascinating because just observing my niece uh, or nephews and pe- kids around me, it's just like that joyfulness kind of gets beaten down a little bit once they go start going to school, like because then they they understand like their societal norms and like you know I can't sing too loudly here because like what will the other kids think? Like these are things that they they start to experience, but you know I think if if your daughter has that personality, like she'll maintain it. It doesn't like, she'll be a, as you said, a theater kid will be a theater kid. So, you know, like it, you know, that's not going to go away. It's just like, it's just interesting. Like trying to like figure out kids to like, just navigate those societal norms for the first time, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm fine telling him to put on pants or something, you know, when we're outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But if, if she's going to get peer pressured, I don't want too much from me. She can get that play from other people. 
Um, but you know, she's a, she's a smart kid. She'll figure things out. And I think people generally enjoy her company. So I don't think she's going to get that much heat. Maybe, maybe when she gets older, I don't know. I don't know anything about how, how girls grow up in elementary school, but, um, I, you know, we were, we talked about it. My wife and I talked about it for kindergarten because she is so like that, but she was, she was cautious enough that she didn't want to make herself a spectacle in the classroom even then, because she is, when she's comfortable, she's very comfortable doing those effusive imaginative things, but she does like to know the lay of the land before she puts mm-hmm. herself out there. Um, which yeah. again, kind of like me too. So yeah, it worked out fine. Sounds, for sounds like she's going to turn out great. I mean, already has, like she just <laughs> seems super <laughs> smart and aware and on top of things. Well, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's, it's a <laughs> place. <laughs> we'll see if she handles losing magic and then we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so back to your your magic story. So uh, you know, you 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 fall in with this group, super hyper spike competitive group. So, um, what what was your first kind of level up moment? Where was the first moment that you felt like you know, I'm sort of like got to the next level a little bit? Was it like maybe yeah, winning? I, I can totally answer that question. I can totally answer that question because I was playing a tournament, some store thing, and I sat down against a guy, and he's like, I didn't want to play you today. I was like, oh, mm. wow, I've, I've arrived. That's fantastic. And that was a good feeling. You know, <laughs> I, I enjoyed that feeling. I wanted to continue. So that was that was nice. And I that felt like I was making a name and that I was being known as somebody who could be competent at cards. And I like that. Mm-hmm. That That's that's great. I mean, you, you start developing that rep as being kind of uh, the local end boss. And then and then what uh, what were your first like? major successes in 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 magic like competitive magic um well let's see i so i was reading everything of course so i had a subscription to duelist and i saw in the the magazine that they were having the first black lotus professional tour and you could just call a number and pay a 50 dollars entry fee and you can go there and there was a there was a juniors division and a seniors division. I was 16, so I qualified for the juniors division. And I called them and they said, okay, you're in. And my grandmother at the time, and it was passed away since then, but my grandmother lived in New York City, so I had a place to stay. Um, and she, she was happy to let me visit her and stay with her. So I, my first you know thing was the pro tour. There was other events. Um, you know, I, I, I'm sure there were other events. There were things I did, but that was like a consequential one. Mm-hmm. And I, I got creamed. I didn't know anything. Uh, it was funny, too, because they sent me a packet when I registered. They sent me some kind of packet from the company. You know, you qualified. And it was kind of like a distinctive like folder it came in. And so I went to the source, and I was carrying it around. I was like, I hope somebody sees this and says they're in the Pro Tour, too, so I can like try to work with them. And Randy Bueller was actually there because he was going to graduate school in Minnesota at the time. And oh, so he, okay. and so he was like, "Oh, you're going there too. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that pro tour thing too." And I'm like, "Great." And we never like connected. We were never like working on decks together. And my deck was complete trash. It had that stupid like five cards from Homelands, five cards from Fourth Edition. Oh, just, that that was the that was the that was the um, the requirement. Yeah. Yeah. So I knew nothing. I knew nothing about deck building with this restriction. I didn't know anything about deck building. Period. I was I was awful. Um, but I had a deck, and I went there, and I actually played Brian Kibler round one. That's how we met. Um, and I got creamed. I actually won the first round because my opponent was a reporter's son. 
he was there to cover and they said, does your son want to play? And he's like, okay. And so they just gave him some cards and I won. I was like, I'm the greatest <laughs> player of all time. This is great. I'm undefeated at this first pro tour. And then yeah, I just quickly, start. quickly, quickly uh-huh. got trounced uh, by Brian Kibler and many other people. And that was that. Um, but that was like, you know, that felt good. I enjoyed playing on the stage. It was kind of a miserable day. I was like blizzarding and whatever. And I mm-hmm. hated losing, but, um, but I wasn't at a place where I thought I was good. So it wasn't like, the loss was impacting my mental image of myself. It was just like, mm-hmm. this was, this was exciting. And then this was, I don't know how we got this, but then, you know, playing the local stuff, whatever. And then we had the first, I think it was literally the first one in the world, but it was at least one of the first pro tour qualifiers for the second pro tour. Okay. And it was at this convention center. I think it was, I think it was where they played basketball actually in St. Paul, like the target center or something. But um it was a it was a cut to day two okay they had an approach or qualifier and then if you made the top eight you you had to come back the next day to play and then i think the top two people were invited to the pro tour pro tour number two okay and andrew finch who was a wizards employee at the time flew in from renton to oversee things you know it was like a big deal it was like their new model of of qualifications and so i ended up in ninth place at that tournament and I still came the next day because one, I liked watching magic and two, because I was like, and someone didn't show up. And so I got on the top eight there and uh, I, I made the top four and I lost there. And they're like, well, you didn't qualify for the regular pro tour, but since you're still 16 or something, you can barely in the juniors again. So I qualified for the juniors pro tour there. And it was the first draft format. I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I got creamed, but you know, yeah. you just start like learning and you just keep building and um, growing. And then, you know, I played, I think, I think a total of 20 Pro Tours over my career. I don't remember. It was like 19, mm-hmm. 20, or 21. I think 20, you know, just qualifying, refining, getting better, that kind of thing. What was the, what was the motivation to, to keep trying to climb that, that mountain for you? Like, what, can you, can you, can you think <clears throat> about how you, drove yourself to like keep doing that and like you know like the heartbreak of like okay i'm i, I finished in the top four not top two so i didn't qualify but i'm gonna keep coming back and like almost like be a glutton for punishment because i know at the high levels like magic can be very punishing so what what kept you coming back for it i mean this was i had nothing else going on okay like, I, I like I that. in, that's a good honest answer i, like, I, appreciate <laughs> I mean I, I, was in, I was in high school i was bored out of yeah. my mind in high school uh-huh. I, my grades were fine they weren't like super superb but i just was getting nothing out of it i wasn't dating um Mm. i had friends but they weren't like as close friends as my magic friends you know those were people i could you know really got the common language yeah yeah exactly we had a shared interest um you know i wasn't i was involved in sports then there was just really nothing else going on my home life was kind of weird uh and so it just was like this is something I can devote all my curiosity to and my attention to and my interest to, and I'm seeing actual tangible results. You know, I'm, I'm actually winning tournaments. I'm actually making money doing this and I'm getting recognition and like all the things that anybody craves. I was, mm-hmm. I was receiving them. Like, why would I stop? You know, if I had the right. skills and I had the time and I was getting those rewards, there was no reason to not continue. There were, there were plenty of reasons to not continue. I'm um, having a balanced life and, you know, <laughs> filling those holes, but at the time, I was like, "This is going great. Why, why stop?" Right. Did it help you uh, with sort of developing your own internal confidence, or just how you see yourself? 
Um, internal confidence, yes. I never really had a lack of confidence. Like, like I said, I was pretty guarded. You know, I didn't want to seem vulnerable because I had I've been penalized for being vulnerable. So I was pretty, I was pretty aloof. People thought I was quiet in school. I wasn't really quiet. I just didn't talk to people unless I trusted you, kind of thing. You know, I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't willing to put myself out there. Um, but I never really had a lack of confidence because I was able to take things. I was just observant, basically. I just was like, I liked getting the lay of the land and just learning things and packing things away and stuff like that. Um, as far as self-image was concerned, yeah, that was an issue because, you know, I knew I was working harder than a lot of my opponents. I knew I was putting in more time and putting in more energy. And so that's why the losses hurt because I was like, I've got nothing else. I'm not in sports. I don't have like a girlfriend, you know, I am doing this thing. And then I take a loss and I'm like, wow, this is just my mental image is just being shattered as somebody who can win a game of magic. And obviously right. now I know like <laughs> you're going to lose magic all the time. It's not a game of like perfect information and perfect skill, but I was very immature then. And so that, that was something that did affect me because I had just one thing in my life and I was building it up and up and up. And I had that external validation, people saying, wow, you're a threat. You're dangerous. I don't want to play against you. And then losing is like, you know, wh who am I? What am I? That kind of thing. Would you say that it led to kind of the entitlement in like, I felt like I deserved to win because I put in a lot more work and it, it means a lot more to me than, than for my opponent? I don't, I mean, entitlement, I don't like the word. It's probably accurate, but I would think it's more of like a defense mechanism. Like mm -hmm. I, I thought I was control. I thought I could win this game. I thought I was someone who was competent and who could control who won and lost a game. And it turns out I'm not. So I've got to control something. I've got to like react. I've got to let them know I'm upset so I can like get a little bit of my power back. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's where it comes from. You know, I never go into a game thinking I'm going to win. I think one of my skills is that I take every opponent really seriously. Like, you know, I've played, you know, people of all ages, little kids, grandpas, men, women, whatever. And I've never like, oh, thank God I'm playing a woman. I know this is going to be easy. I've never thought that. I just like take them all really seriously. And I think that helps. Um, but again, at the same time, it's like, it's just like strikes you to your core when my core was, this is all I am. This is my identity right now. Right. Were you hyper competitive at all before Magic, or is this like the very first thing that like you you sort of started to experience that? I was I was always a games player. Um, my my mom likes to tell the story of how I was playing Monopoly at the age of five and I was winning, and we played checkers and and she <laughs> she wouldn't let me win at checkers and I asked her about it one time and she said I read a parenting article where they said don't let your kids win. like you make them work for it. And so, yeah. you know, I got pretty good at checkers because she was not letting me win. You know, I was, I'd get mm -hmm. frustrated, obviously. And, you know, maybe that's not something you do to a five-year-old. But um, I, don't, I don't let my daughter win at Uno. So maybe it's like follow there you go. things. But she beats me sometimes. So that's fun, too. And she earns it. But, um, but, you know, games were always a part of growing up. We played draw poker, you know, as a family, a little draw poker set with the chips and everything. And we played that uh, Monopoly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned like, you know, reading, you had a subscription to The Duelist and, you know, you're playing with people who are also very good at magic, but can you go into a little bit of, you know, how did you, what did you specifically do to level up? Like, cause I mean, we all start from a baseline, but obviously you reach more success than the average 
magic player. So what, what did you do? Like, uh, you, you had mentioned in our prep that, you know, you, um, you know, you had a rival and maybe, maybe that was a part of it too. It was just like making each other better, but like, what kind of things did you work on? Like, what, what, yeah, what was your, what was your system if you had one? Yeah. I mean, I think I told you, it's just like, do put as much time into it as possible. Just always be learning. Just always be observing, you know, just like look, look for something you can use at the next match. Look for something that'll be helpful for you. When, if I'm done quickly, I'm watching people at the table levels that I'm at um, to see what they're playing, you know, get a sense of their decks. Um, if I'm out, I'm looking at the top tables and seeing what are they doing differently. You know, just I'm, I'm just always, I'm always just trying to improve and just trying to test myself and, uh, and get better. Um, the way to get better at magic is to play people that are better than you. You, the players who can get to this place will play as good as they need to play to beat their opponents. But if their opponents aren't very good, then they they're not going to be very good. They should be a little bit better than not very good. So it's always looking for for the best players and to have a chance to play them. And so if you can find who the best players are in an area, I mean, if you're the best player, great. But then you you're how are you growing? You know, so you've got to go to other places and look for ways to test yourself against stronger opponents to continue that advancement. Yeah. Did you mess it all with uh, magic online back in the early days of that? <laughs> yeah, I did. I remember I was, I was at a friend's house and he had gotten magic online. It was like within the first couple of days of it being released. And I remember I just, I didn't go to sleep that night. I was like, <laughs> he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to bed, you know, have fun. And I'm like, okay, I'm not. And it was like from, you know, 10, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. It was just drafts, seventh edition drafts, and all the rest of it. I, I loved it. I, that was the worst of it. I hadn't done, I hadn't done a lot since then, um, since that night. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it at the time. I mean, I was playing, like I said, an apprentice in IRC, which was a pretty horrible program, but it was, it worked. You know, you could play magic with it. And I played yeah. a lot. Um, <laughs> you asked about how the sausage is made. As far as that changed my relationship with Magic, it doesn't, but Magic Online might be an exception. Like, that there is a lot of stories on Magic Online. There's a whole series of podcasts about how that program was invented and developed. Um, that well, the one that I is wild. And you can tell you can tell me if this is this is correct or not, but I remember reading somewhere that like Wizards had no faith in digital magic ever becoming a thing. And so it was like some kind of volunteer project, Moto, like someone just created it as a side project. I'm trying to recall who that gentleman was, but like it was just like a side project. And then he actually went and shopped it back to Wizards and Wizards was like, uh, seems okay, but we're not really interested. And it like, it was just this like insane in retrospect, like just complete ignorance or willful ignorance of just online play. And, 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 and it just sort of like grew as a like as it's as a monster like independently until sometime later it got merged with the mothership that that's my recollection of it anyway i, I don't know that story is very possible um i can tell you that when leaping lizards was developing it things were pretty smooth and then for some reason someone at wizards said they could bring it in house to develop it and that was a yeah. disaster and there was always stability issues and ui issues and you know i talked yeah. to when i was there i talked to some of the people who are working on it and they were just had this thousand yard stare in their eyes. It was like no support changing goals all the time. They hated it. And they were always getting flushed and getting new people in and things never happened. Yeah. 
Um, but, you know, the thing was, Magic Online was a huge moneymaker for Wizards at the time. And so we talked about ways that Wizards didn't have to be so agile and so efficient with their processes. Magic mm-hmm. Online was one reason. Like, Magic is a great game. You can make mistakes and people will still buy it. And Magic Online was what people wanted to play and they would and they did spend a ton of money on it. And so, again, they didn't need to be perfect at their jobs because they had Magic and they had Magic Online and that was great for them. Yeah. I think it still is a big um, moneymaker because, like, I'm just thinking about myself anecdotally. I've spent way more time in cash on Magic Online than I have in <laughs> Arena. Like, And this is like, you know... I only started playing Magic Online this year, uh, right, right when the pandemic started happening, and I've I've sunk in probably like two grand into Magic Online. I know I can get probably like seventy five percent of that back if I sold off the cards that I bought because I'm not using a a rental service. But like, it's not easy. Like, it's one of the few things that you actually have to pay to play <laughs> in this day and age. And yeah. I I I am not good enough to go infinite. Like, I don't have the fifty. 5% win rate or whatever in leagues to to do that. So I'm just kind of like spewing tickets just like pl- or play points and it's just like but I want to do it because I it's like you're actually playing against good players but I but but yeah, sometimes I question my own life decisions but like Well, first of it's, all, it's pretty be- good. On yeah. behalf of the folks who can go infinite, thank you for your service. Uh, but you know, <laughs> we're we're in a pandemic now. Like find yeah, it's a zero sum game, game, right? Yeah, someone yeah. has to go f- Someone has to go finite for someone else to go infinite. So I get it. You know, I'm not going to, like I said, if you're not doing drugs or alcohol or anything like that, nothing, nothing self to Even a little drugs or alcohol is probably fine. But if you're not doing too much and you're finding entertainment. No, just just coffee and magic online. That's all. Yeah. If you're finding entertainment somewhere and you're not skipping a, a rental payment or a mortgage payment because you're spending too much money. No, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, one of my, like this will, this will reveal how much of a scrub I am. Like I've never day two the GP. So um, before this pandemic happened, I said, you know, because I'm a big fan of the legacy format, like, you know, my goal in life and magic is to day two, like this podcast or these books, like they don't mean anything. I just want to day two a GP in the mm-hmm. legacy format. And, <laughs> and and I still use that as a joke now with my friends because like, I don't think that legacy GP is ever going to come anymore, but uh, but uh, I'm having fun playing magic online. So I, I digress. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't regret it. I've definitely spent way more on Magic Online than I ever have in like two years of playing Arena. But uh, I just, I just don't boot up Arena. Like you know, we do it for cardboard live reasons and you know for supporting it. But like I personally just, <laughs> I'm in Magic Online. So what can I say? If you're having fun with it, I say that's fine. I technically have an account, but I haven't logged on in probably a decade, and I really have no interest in doing it. I do play a little MTG Arena now because I switch from apple to pc which ironically they now release on apple anyway but um i got a Mm -hmm. pc computer for the first time in a long time just this year and so i downloaded it and i've i spent a little bit of money um and i'm just kind of treading i'm I'm almost always play limited because it's more fun to me and it's it's more like i don't have time to read articles about the standard metagame or anything like that so i get in a draft I mean, I didn't. I literally didn't play for five years or something, from like when my daughter was born to now, mm-hmm. except for one event last year. And so, a lot of the cards I've seen, I'm seeing them for the first time, and I'm like that guy who's reading every card. You know, it's like, oh, it's right. interesting, whatever. So it's kind of fun in that sense. 
Um, but it's also a little like frustrating because you don't know the tricks people have. Yeah, I have a I have a friend right now who's like probably one of the best magic players in China. Um, he's played in a couple of pro tours this year. He was actually trying to grind that horrendous ladder to try and make rivals this year, and uh, he he got he lost because of some kind of bug with arena as as always as it always happens. <laughs> but he he was saying like um, he's a very high level limited player. I'll just put it that way, and. Uh, he was just saying, like, man, I love limited because, like, it's honestly one of the formats where if you just put in a lot more work than your opponents, like, you're just gonna do better, you know? Like, you just understand all the everything about about it. And he just loves it. He's just like, he's just like, you know, he has a kid, he has a family, he's doing it part time, but he's just like, I love playing Magic when, like, he's saying, he told me, like, I love playing Magic when it's like the preparation actually pays off, you know? Like, you know, every round every draft i do i'm more prepared than the other guy you know yeah uh, maybe yeah. that's how you feel too it's a good feeling i'll tell you this this is the craziest thing about arena i was playing i played a lot in june and i and i was getting to be mythic like i was playing the round that if i won i was gonna be mythic and the season ended in the middle of our game and so the win, <laughs> okay. the win didn't count <laughs> It did not count. I did not reach Mythic because the season ended in the middle of the game. It was astonishing. Yeah. I didn't know the program would do that. I wasn't uh-huh. it wasn't playing that way, and I didn't. I don't know why it ended at noon Pacific Standard Time anyway. But um, yeah, I'm, I've never been Mythic on on Arena, but I oh, got man. real close one time. You were you were literally like on the bubble of that, like yeah. during the match. Yeah. Oh man. Who knew? Yeah. So um, what what's your continued relationship with Magic? I'm sort of. I'm sort of sensing it, but I, I kind of wanted to just just be straight up and ask, you know. Uh, I don't have a relationship. I mean, my my podcast was like the denouement of my my life with the game. You know, I I got a lot out of the game. I had seen the world, whatever, whatever, and here's something I can give back and tell these stories. I think some people be interested in. Um, but I don't play competitively. I don't read articles. I don't do the magazine. Um, I don't know if there's still magazines or anything like that these days. Anyway, I, don't, <laughs> I don't have a premium membership to any of the websites. Um, you know, I've got friends who still play and, you know, I kind of hear things trickling down, you know, another scandal yeah. here, another scandal there. I like that if I want to email somebody or call somebody at Wizards, they'll probably take my call, but I have nothing to say at this point, but I'm, I'm comfortable with that relationship. Um I, I'm yeah. supportive of the game. I want people to have fun playing it, but it's it, I don't have the time or energy to get into it much. There's no uh, there's no competitive fire or something that like makes you want to go back you know, to it. Because like last last year when you played in that event, I know it didn't. I know it wasn't a, the most pleasant experience, but like something drew you back there, well, right? Just well, maybe it was it was in my hometown, so I didn't have to travel. And it was like the nostalgia set. It was like all the old mechanics and stuff. So obviously that's appealing to me, the nostalgia thing. And that, that it had to be like that. It had to be something where I, it was limited. I didn't have to repair. I actually knew the mechanics because they'd already used them before. <laughs> and it had to be somewhere yeah. I could just drive to. You know, So that was right. the perfect storm of events that I would play in it. Um, and you know, it was nice seeing friends I hadn't seen in a while and things like that. And it was nice. It was nice playing competitive. The thing is about the fire, you can't like half-ass it. Like I've played at those levels where I'm pouring hours of work into it to do that. So for me to like dip my toe doesn't feel right. Like I'm going to lose more and I'm going to be more frustrated because I know people who are prepared more are going to win more. 
And so I don't want to be in that situation where I am trying to, you know, feed on sheer talent and the people who are just putting the work in are, are crushing me. Like it's not going to, it's not going to make me happy. You know, if I, if I was able to put in the time, maybe I would look into it, but since I'm not, I'm not going to try to just do a, a pitiful job of it. Yeah. I mean, frankly, my work, my work is a little more stimulating right now and my kids demand a lot of attention and there's just, there's nothing else to do. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're not, we're not the 16 year olds that we once were like, uh, yeah, I remember being very obsessive about things back then too, just because I had nothing else going on. So. Yeah, it's it's a young man's game or a young woman's game, and that's that's fine. Um, yeah. yeah, I was listening to it actually Chris uh, Piccolo talk with in an interview a little while ago, and he was like the 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 leaders, the high level winners of games have shifted into older. Like it used to be eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and now it's like twenty five to thirty. So there is room for people with established careers to to do well, but I feel like if I tried to be competitive again in the game, it would it would be a detriment to everything else I'm working on right now, and I still probably wouldn't right. do very well. Yeah, no, I mean you don't you don't want to you don't want to uh, half-ass it as you said, and that that's always been something that I've been very uh, curious about with high-level players. Is I because talking to John Finko, I, I remember asking him like you know what. What keeps you like coming back to it? Because obviously he's got his hands full and lots of non-NTG stuff, and, and and it seems like it's really just like there are a lot of people that just stay in it because of like getting to see old friends or whatever it was, you know. So yeah, people have reasons. All right, so Noah, where can people find your stuff? Like, where can people find you on social, or where can they get um, gathering stories, the history of magic? <laughs> If you want to listen to this seven-episode podcast that will likely never be finished or have a second season or anything like that, um, I'm on Apple Podcast. I'm on, I think, Libsyn is my host, um, Spotify. I, I technically have a Twitter account. I got a little more active um, after I started doing the podcast, but I think Twitter's garbage, and I don't like it, and I don't not on it very much. And um, I have a Facebook account that I don't. I don't accept friend requests that much more. So <laughs> there's nothing. You can't find me. I'm, I'm invisible. Okay. Um, so we'll just find you. Just You can just find, find you can just find Noah on this podcast and Google I mean, me for you're, gathering stories. I mean, if you're charged with a crime, give me a call. You know, we can figure something out. But that's, that's kind of how I'm meeting new people these days is people who are like looking at, you know, prison. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know. I, no, actually, that's a that's a legit plug. I, I like that. So, um, <laughs> no, Noah, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, I hope you and your family stay stay uh, stay safe and stay well. Thanks, James. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.